I am Sneha Hirimat, founder of Ace Advisors, a consulting firm specialized in external communications. This is Planet BE, a podcast where every week I will take you backstage to meet a private equity player. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jasma Capital, a placement agent and secondary transaction advisor for private equity, infrastructure, and private debt. Jasma Capital covers Europe, North America, Asia Pacific, and the Middle East. Hello, and welcome to Planet PE. I am here today with Adam Ligo, Senior Managing Director at Macquarie Asset Management. He is head of Client Solutions Group in Europe and the Middle East. Since joining the firm in Sydney in 2002 and transferring to London in 2006, Adam has been involved in a broad range of transactions and capital raising initiatives, primarily in private markets infrastructure equity. Before Macquarie, Adam spent two years with Perpetual Asset Management in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Adam. Hi, Sneha. How about we begin with you giving us an overview of Macquarie's activities? Sure, yeah, very happy to. And thanks thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, so Macquarie, it's a um, diversified financial services institution headquartered in Sydney, Australia, uh, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It's uh, a top 10 company by, by market capitalization out there. So a well-known company in Australia. Um, has 16,000 staff operating in 31 markets around the world. And one of its uh, major business lines is Macquarie Asset Management, which is a top 50 global asset manager, uh, provides investment solutions to clients across a range of capabilities um, in alternatives and and traditional assets. Um, In alternatives, we specialize in infrastructure and renewables, real estate, agriculture, transportation finance, so things like aircraft leasing. Um, Private credit is another specialty that that we focus on. On the traditional side, it's uh, it's equities, fixed income, and multi-asset solutions. Um, so it's a broad broad offering across the across the piece there. Around 340 billion euros in assets under management uh, globally, and uh, we're very proud to to say that we have over a thousand institutional clients um, that we work with. The bulk of those are from pension, insurance, and sovereign wealth funds. Um, but probably within all of that, I think we're best known for our infrastructure experience. You touched on that in my background. That's like a lot of people here at Macquarie who've worked in infrastructure. Um, we've been doing that for, for over 25 years. We're the world's largest infrastructure fund manager. Um, we've got about 150 uh, portfolio companies today residing in our, in our various funds around the world. And we're really proud of our, our team and track record I mean, in respect of that. Um, but also very proud of the, the companies that we run. They um, they serve over 100 million people daily, um, and we've got about 150,000 asset employees and contractors worldwide in, in doing that inside those portfolio companies. So it's a um, it's a big and big big business, and we're well known for it. Yeah. So the world's largest infrastructure fund manager with a thousand institutional investors. That's that's very impressive. Um, And actually, that is where I would like to focus today, since your specialization is client relations. Uh, What has been, for example, the impact of COVID-19 on your fundraising? And uh, I think today we can't really do an interview without talking about this context. COVID, yeah, fair enough. I mean, um, 
first things first, it's very, very different to what I thought it would be when it first happened. And, and that's because it's very different to what we experienced in the, um, in the last global financial crisis. In the GFC, I think it's fair to say pretty much all of our fundraising stopped dead in its tracks at that time. We had clients that, you know, they, they didn't know what was in their portfolio, um, even their cash positions. You know, I remember speaking to a client back then and he said, you know, I just found out this morning uh, my cash isn't cash. That's supposed to be my safe harbour, but it was actually with Lehman's. So we had clients really just sitting there saying, I, I don't know what's in my portfolio. I'm, I'm in wait and see mode. And basically everything we were doing in, in private markets stalled. Um, it was really different this time around, actually. We, we saw soon after the announcement, everybody started, you know, working from home and working virtually and engaging with clients. And we saw clients generally looking through the pandemic, generally um, continuing on with the due diligence that they were doing before and um, continuing to, to invest. That's not in, entirely the case. We certainly had some clients that were in the wait and see mode and, and, uh, and some that some generally paused. But, um, but we, we continue to raise capital. And, and interestingly, uh, yeah, I looked, uh, looked at our stats earlier, uh, just in April, so during COVID, just in April, which is the first month of our financial year, we actually raised 3.5 billion Australian dollars uh, of capital. Wow. And that's against $20 billion that we raised in the prior financial year. So, so that, that's continued on. Um, it's difficult for me to comment specifically about uh, what we've done since then because it's market sensitive, but, um, but, the, but that, that was announced to the market back then. So I think you can see that clients continue to invest through, through COVID. And you said that uh, the clients, uh, most of them were, or at least some of them, were continuing their due diligence. Uh, obviously, it was virtual due diligence. I would like to know what the experience of, of this was and how different is it uh, from due diligence pre-COVID? Yeah, it's amazing how everybody's adapted. Uh, you know, it's certainly different. I mean, you know, I'm somebody that's sort of spent my life sort of traveling around the world and doing face-to-face -face meetings and you know, pitches to, to boardrooms and investment committees and the like in, in person. And um, that's obviously not possible now. Um, so it's been really interesting to see how the businesses continue to move forward and the markets continue to move forward. Notwithstanding, people can't really meet. So it's, you know, it's, our clients have adapted virtually. We've adapted virtually. Um, we basically had everybody at Macquarie, the 16,000 staff working virtually almost immediately. So that's quite amazing. Um, What's been interesting is we've had clients that have gone and uh, and proceeded with their you know, various investment committees and boards. And uh, again, typically, yeah, we'd fly in for that and uh, turn up for the day and do our one hour presentation or whatever it might be, and then fly home or, or go see some other investors in that location. We've been actually doing it virtually. And uh, we've won one mandates um, by dialing in <laughs> effectively, the, the whole the whole thing virtually. Um, so yeah, it's certainly different, and it brings up a whole a, a range of different challenges, ones that you didn't really think about before. So, yeah, do you have the right technology? Do you have a good internet connection? What's the lighting like on your on your video? Do you have sound? Who answers what question? You know, you don't have the body language type feel that you might have around a board table. Um, it's really hard when you've, you. Know, we, we we did one for a for a uh, for a fund of ours out in Asia. And you know we had a person dialing in from Sydney, Singapore, uh, two based in Munich, all from home. Yeah, you know, who? How do you? How do you? It's, it's just much more difficult to organise that sort of um, pitch. So there's a lot more preparation that goes into that sort of the logistics behind all of that. Yeah, but it works. So it's been good. Yeah.
Um, and as for your uh, existing LPs, um, what were their most pressing concerns uh, when you know that the world kind of came to a stop uh, at the beginning of the COVID nineteen crisis? Yeah, I mean, it really depends who they are and where they are and what they've invested in um, and and how much they've invested. So you could imagine if they've you know, made a very big big investment in something particular, then they they hone in on that versus um, smaller parts of their portfolio. Um, narrowing into to alts, for example, into, into alternatives, they've focused on obviously what's happening in the portfolio. They've been very focused on what's happening down in the underlying uh, portfolio companies um, and really wanted to get specific, you know, because they're getting questions too. And that's something that we've, that we're always very conscious of is that our clients, you know, they, they get questions themselves. So we're trying to give them as much information as we can, as soon as we can, when we know it. Um, so the different types of questions, you know, it could be in real estate, they, they want to understand the, the, the tenants and whether the tenants are paying and what's the t credit quality of the tenants. It could be in transport, they might be focused on the airports, for example, and you know, how is it going with the airlines? Is there any traffic at all? What's the, what's the debt position look like? All of that sort of usual stuff that you would expect. Um, in utilities, a lot of the questioning was around ensuring that we could continue to provide the essential services. So, for example, water, gas and electricity that all of those stakeholders you know, rightfully rely upon, making sure that we've got you know, the business continuity plans in place, all of that. So, you know, it really depends on the client, where they were located, how much they've invested, what in. Um, that sort of drove where they, where they focus their time. But, um, but it's all pretty, pretty logical stuff. And also, I uh, I think you said this at the beginning. Um, a lot of your clients are also pension funds who um, who yeah. themselves have uh, commitments to their to their clients, and you know changes in in liquidity schedules and in durations of funds obviously impact their own activities. So I guess that they were also probably more concerned than other types of investors. Um, how did you address them in 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 a context of you know work from home where it's always more difficult to uh, to communicate and and reassure? Yeah, I mean, what we what we try and do is um, be be out there early with as much information as we can, be on the front foot with as much information as we can, because we know they're getting the questions, and uh, you know we don't always have the answers. It's sort of you, know, you can imagine in week one of COVID, what's it mean? Well, nobody really knows, right? Like, what, what's the recovery going to look like? And um, and and each of those underlying investments are, are, are busy running their investments as well, so. Yeah, that, that requires a bit of um, it requires a bit of patience and understanding from clients, but um, you know they they were definitely, and um, yeah, we were proactive. We were out there on the front foot with as much as we could, as soon as we could, and that's one of our I suppose lessons from the last financial crisis was around that proactivity, being um, being able to be on the front foot with clients and give them as much information as we can, being as open and as transparent as we can because um, that helps them, but it also stops all of the, you know, the, the, um, the, the individual inbound inquiries. You know, you end up fighting lots of individual fires if you're not on the front foot. Um, if we're out on the front foot communicating with those clients as much as we can, um, that helps us, you know, be, be organised and focus on the next phase of our, our client communication plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And do you think that um, the current crisis, uh, which has been obviously pretty well managed in terms of communications uh, with clients and also investors better understanding the context than uh, during the 2008 crisis, uh, that this will permanently change the nature of fundraising and investor relations, that we will probably see um, you know, less roadshows in person um, and more things will happen virtually and so differently? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sped up. I mean, you, you read about this a lot. The COVID's just sort of sped up things that were already already happening anyway, whether that's to do with technology or, or other things. Um, I think that's the case here. I think there was a direction of travel generally towards using more technology. I think there is a direction of travel around um, fewer flights, for example. I think in, in time, you know, I can't imagine, irrespective of COVID, that in 20 years' time, uh, you'd be sort of flying in and out of a, of a city for a one-hour pitch um, like you might have done 10 years ago. I think that was already a, a path that was being travelled and going to happen. Um, I just think that the COVID sped it up. Um, but what won't completely change? So, yes, there'll be more technology. Yes, there'll be probably fewer flights, you know, virtual meetings and due diligence to get done. But in the end, I don't think what will change is that humans like personal interactions. They like you know, meeting people and seeing people. And um, and I think that will, will continue. Um, it may just not happen as much as it used to before. And it may um, may just be a little bit more efficient. You know, like 10 years ago, you would fly to a city for one pitch and fly out. That's, yeah, that, that, that happens. Um, I don't think that'll be happening in, in five, 10 years time. Not as much anyway. But typically for due diligence processes, you do believe that it would still be important to actually, uh, for the LPs to meet with the fund managers and vice versa. I do think that, yes. Yeah. In, in, how does that happen? Is that at conferences? Is that in our office? Is that more, um, you know, more systematic and planned? I'm not sure. Is it less frequent than it, than it used to be, perhaps? Um, but I think it's still going to happen and going to need to happen. I think humans like that sort of... Um, that, that direct interaction, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. All the sounds sounds very clear, and I think we're definitely going towards, um, like you said, you know, uh, the, the crisis definitely has sped up uh, processes that were already underway, and I think it's 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 good news uh, overall. Mm. Uh, so thanks for these insights. Before we end this podcast, Adam, um, I always like to ask my guest, um, especially since you've been in this industry for a long time, what advice you would give to a young private equity professional today? A young private equity professional? Um, well, I actually get asked this quite a bit at work, actually. <laughs> um, so I've sort of, as you can imagine, think about it quite a bit. And um, I've tried to think over the years about what sort of distinguished those that have you know, done really well in their careers versus others that haven't. Um, first of all, I'd say to a, a young private equity professional that they're in a good, good part of the market. I think um, private equity and alternatives generally, you know, I, I work in, in infrastructure and real assets and, and within that space, we think there's a very bright future, both from a supply side of transactions, but also a demand side from, from investors. So I think a young professional, if you're in that space, you're in a good, you're in a good place to start with. Um, the next thing I talk to, to our, to our um, graduates about is trying not to be too prescriptive too early on in your career. I think, it's really difficult to know what's around the corner. Mm -hmm. um, and over time, you will probably change as a person as well, and your interests will change. You know, there's no way you know, when I, I started at Macquarie in 2002 in Sydney that I could know 
that I'd be sitting here in London you know, running the client solutions group in EMEA for Macquarie Asset Management. You know, back then Macquarie Asset Management actually didn't really exist. Um, the infrastructure business was a really small business. Um, I'd never been to London. <laughs> List goes on. And so <laughs> what are you, you can't really be too prescriptive. You don't know which way the business is going to go. Um, you don't know what sort of person you're going to be and what your interests are. So try not to focus too far out. Try, but what, what I do talk to people about is focusing on your attitude and understanding that just being bright sort of isn't enough. You know, everybody's intelligent in, in this space. Um, yes, you need a minimum level of intelligence, but it isn't enough. It's about attitude. Um, attitude is is everything. And so what I talk to our, our team about is about having a good attitude and having a bias to yes around, um, around work that hits your desk. <laughs> Um, not all the work that hits your desk is interesting, doesn't really appeal to you. You don't necessarily see how it fits into your broader career. That's okay. But someone needs you to do it. So you know, I always had the attitude, if it hits my desk, I do it as well as I can mm -hmm. and then move on. And doing a good job, doing it well, doing it efficiently, having a positive attitude, that just opens up more options. It opens up more options later so that, you know, you as a changed person or a, or a changed business, You'll have, you'll have a bit more choice to, to move into things that you like. And I think, so, yep, you're in a good place. Being smart's not enough. Have a good attitude. Do that. Do the stuff on the, that hits your plate. Do it well. That'll open up options. You'll have more choice later on in your career. So good attitude and perseverance. Thanks a lot, yeah, Adam. Yeah, perseverance for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot. It was lovely chatting with you. Great. Lovely, lovely, lovely speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. And I guess that moving to... Uh, London all these years ago probably also had an impact on your accent because honestly when I started the podcast I was a little afraid of not being able to understand an Australian accent. Oh, hopefully I still sound Australian. I've been trying to hang on to it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks. Thanks Neha. Have a good day. Bye. You too. And a big thank you to all our listeners. This episode was sponsored by Jasmine Capital, a placement agent and secondary transaction advisor for private equity infrastructure, and private debt. Jasmine Capital covers Europe, North America, Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. <laughs>